Are you ready to listen to a podcast? Upskills. Upskills. Masterclass. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading the 19th episode of the Upskilled Masterclass. My name's Ralph Tucker. Today, we'll be looking at the importance of leadership and what role it plays within any organisation, business or sporting team. To look at the subject of leadership in greater detail, my guest today is Sporting Administrator Bob Turner. Bob has spent the past 40 years as a basketballer, coach, manager, marketing executive and owner. He's probably best known for his various roles with NBL teams, the Newcastle Falcons, Canberra Cannons and Sydney Kings, along with the establishment of the Singapore Slingers. He's currently the chairman of the Sydney Blue Sox baseball team and has taken a new role with the emerging company Sportstech. Bob's media profile and access to decision makers in the sporting, political and business arenas, combined with his credibility and work ethic, make him the perfect person to talk about the challenges associated with leadership in today's business environment. Bob, welcome to the Upskilled Masterclass. Thanks, Ralph. Uh, happy to be uh, involved. Now, leadership is the subject that's covered quite extensively in the courses offered by Upskilled. Uh, it can be explained in a number of different ways. How would you define leadership in business? It's an interesting one. I mean, leadership is no different in sport. I mean, sport and business are very similar. It's just sports far more public. But leadership is, you know, I think determining what you would like to see happen and then getting people to understand that and believe in it and collectively follow uh, that direction. Um, so there's there's many ways of leading people. One is to browbeat them and tell them you will do this, but that lasts very short. That's very short lived. Whereas to me, if if I believe in something and I have a clear direction as to how we can do this, uh, you then need to impart that onto your the other people who are around you, and collectively um, you move forward. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've got a background in sports coaching, administration, marketing, so you're pretty well versed in all those areas. I imagine having to deal with different people, say from like financiers, CEOs, filtering down then to coaches and players, how do you adapt your leadership style based on each of those scenarios? I think you got to you got to first deal understand who you're dealing with and and what's the personality type of the person you're dealing with. And you know, my wife is a psychologist and a doctor of psychology, so I get a lot of insight into people and what when she was doing her uh, initial courses is in the heydays of my coaching. So I learned a lot about group dynamics and how groups work and uh, how individual people work. You know, there's a lot of personality traits that you can follow as to what kind of person you're dealing with. Is that, that person a, a dictator type or a, or a leader or a follower? And if it's a follower, what kind of follower? So you first need to understand who you're dealing with. And, you know, someone in an accountant is totally different to a musician uh, in just a mental approach to things. So you need to know who you're dealing with uh, and know that it's going to be very diverse. So uh, during my years of coaching, we would do personality traits of my 12 players. You would determine, you know, who does what best within the unit and then enhance that. Uh, as best you possibly can and make sure that you build up the people who are not as profiled in, in their positions, but are vital to the success of the organization. So in a coaching sense, 
uh, I had a player named Tim Morrissey who played for me, both in Canberra and in Sydney. Tim was a d- dynamic defender, uh, tough, uh, aggressive, um, but you know that doesn't get the headlines because he, he wasn't scoring 30 points a game. But most times we would win a key game, it was because Tim Morrissey was doing his job for the team. So I made sure that not only he knew, but the public knew through interviews and so forth that Tim was vital to our success, not just Dwayne McLean who scored 30 points. That's an interesting point that you raised there, that um, if you really break it down, a, a leader is only a leader if they have followers. So what makes people want to follow a leader's instruction or guidance? Is it what you just said there, the fact that you make them feel like they're an important part of the team based on their role? That and also just sheer belief. You know, um, I mean, you can you can go far-fetched and go to cult figures and why they people follow them or why does Donald Trump have certain people like him, certain people don't like him, uh, but you can't argue that he's a leader. Now, is he a leader uh, in a way of bringing people with him or is he just a leader saying, do it my way and, and enjoy it? Um, so, again, I, I had a lot of different coaches during my days uh, as a player. And because I always wanted to coach, I was trying to pick out the good and the bad points of that person um, or that approach so I could adapt it to what I believed in. Um, And the key for that is that you still got to be yourself. So I am not a ranter and a raver. I'm not a, you know, you will do it this way and that's it. Uh, I'm a collective uh, uh, approach type of person so that, Someone still has to lead the charge. Someone has to make that vital decision. Um, but hopefully everybody on my team will understand why we're making that decision. And it's not to say you don't have your share of issues or problems, but, uh, you know, as we all know, misery loves company, so solve problems quickly. <laughs> One of the things that you would look at when you're trying to become a leader or in the initial stages would be, as you said there, identifying what qualities you like in leadership and other people. Were there any prominent people that helped you as you were coming along, firstly in sport and also now in business? God, there's so many that I would follow because I was so hungry to learn from, from others. But you know, the, the most significant, like when you're an athlete, you know, a lot of times your coach, is, especially in a team sport, is far more important to your life than even your parents. You know, your parents say, you know, you should do this, you should do that. And you go, yeah, 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 mom and dad, I understand. And you don't do it. But then your coach tells you something and you go, whoa, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I've had that even with my own kids uh, and coaches. But the guy, the fellow who had the most significant impact on me was my high school basketball coach who had polio uh, on crutches permanently uh, but was one of the most dynamic people I've ever met and, uh, and a leader in, in every sense um, and could not demonstrate on the court what he wanted you to do because he was on crutches uh, permanently. Um, so he had a good way of explaining and getting you to understand uh, and getting you to buy in as to what he thought was the best way for us to play the game of basketball. Um, and at one stage, you know, he, he I, I was kind of like had finally made it 
as a starting player and I was, I was going to go on to bigger and better things. And he called me into his office and said, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to drop you from the game this weekend and uh, I might even drop you from the team. And I looked at him and said, what? <laughs> you're kidding me. I worked my tail off to get to where I am. I'm leading score, blah, blah, blah. He said, yeah, but your attitude has changed. You, you think you're good. And, uh, we're, you know, that's not good for the team culture and, uh, I'm not going to have it. Um, and for me, it was like I had more floor burns the next game I played than anybody in history because I dove for every ball I fought, I scrapped, and I changed my attitude back to what made me uh, that kind of person. And it was a lesson in life that I'll never forget because, you know, uh, you tell me to do something, uh, and if I believe in it, I'll get out and do it. What are the personality traits that you believe make up a good leader? I think you have your belief in in your system, but also uh, you have to be honest. Um, You know, people want to know that you care before they care what you know is an old saying. But it's, it's very true because, you know, we're all human beings. We all want to be treated uh, equally. Some people are never going to be leaders, but they're not also followers. Uh, they kind of want to work side by side with you, uh, but know that you'll take the lead when a decision has to be made. And a lot of people are very okay with that. So you, you need to, you know, believe in what you believe in. You need to be disciplined in your approach. And for me, you have to be honest uh, and also enthusiastic because enthusiasm is contagious. And, um, you know, I've always, uh, in anything I've taken on to do, and I love taking on challenges, A, I have to first believe that it's doable and it's not pie in the sky. B is how are we going to get there and C, who are we going to get there with uh, and how are we going to make it work. So in all aspects, it's trying to build the overall package, uh, but enthusiasm, honesty, and discipline in your approach are, are fundamental. We often hear about the phrase being a natural-born leader. That's definitely the case in some people, but is leadership something that can be developed along the way as well? No question. I mean, I, I think I'm a good example. I uh, might be considered a leader because I was a head coach all my life, but um, when I was uh, young, uh, I had to learn all the aspects of what it took. Now, I, I wouldn't say in any way I'm a natural-born leader because I'm, I'm basically a, a, a bit of an introvert. You know, I, I'm happy with my own company. Um, but if you want to coach, you have to take it on and you have to lead. Uh, otherwise, your team doesn't have the culture you want, doesn't have the discipline you want, doesn't have the direction you want. So you have to learn how to how to do that. And over the years, because I wanted to coach so badly, uh, and I wanted to be a head coach. I mean, I would be a terrible assistant coach because I have an opinion <laughs> uh, on, on how things should work. But uh, I've had a lot of people who have wanted to be head coaches, and I have advised them. You know, sometimes they don't like it, but some. but I've advised them, look, you are a very, very good assistant coach. You have a vital role to play. You're critical to our success. But if you want to step up to be a head coach, it's going to be a whole new ballgame for you. And I've had a number of guys that have stepped into a head coaching job last very short period of time because they just don't have that next ingredient that it takes to lead. Having a mentor, how important is that for any leader to be able to rely on somebody else to provide guidance when they need it? Exceptionally important. 
and uh, you need to seek those people out that you not only would would want to talk to but would want to listen to. Um, and you have to also be accepting that you're not always right. Um, so when you seek someone out, a lot of times, you know, people will will have a mentor that will tell them exactly what they want to hear because that's why they sought that person out. Whereas I like to do the opposite in, in many ways. I want to find the guy that's going to test me and show me that I'm, I need to learn this, this, and this um, and challenge me. Because if you challenge me, then you're going to make me a better person, make me think more. Uh, so I, I, no question, you know, everywhere I go. And, and mentor isn't someone who is above you. Mentor could is easily be someone below you uh, because it takes that discussion to understand how people tick. Leadership in many organizations has a series of, of layers. How important is it that everyone has a clear picture of the direction the organization is going? I think that's the most challenging thing in business today. Uh, not, you know, sport is a good example as well because you go from, you know, and now in today's sport owner to, you know, CEO to general manager to, you know, sport development officer to coach to player to trainer. I mean, there's so many elements that need to understand that culture. It's the same in business. And most business leaders of today, the hardest thing for them to do is understand what the person on the floor is going through. Uh, and, you know, I always look at a, an organization like Coca-Cola. You know, when they when you start with Coca-Cola, you start making Coke. Then you go to bottling. Then you go to marketing. Then you go to, you know, sales. Then you go to service. Then you. So by the time you're the CEO or McDonald's does the same thing, you've done all aspects of that business. So you understand what's going through. And if you're smart, you remember <laughs> what, what you went through. So as I said, in my early days, I had a lot of coaches, you know, some who I didn't like uh, very much at all, but they were the coach. I had to respect that uh, if I wanted to play. And, but I wanted to make mental notes of what it is I liked or disliked about that person and earmark that for my future. And communication, I guess, between those series of layers would be vital. You know, and, and I'm involved with baseball and, and basketball, obviously, and, and other sports that, you know, where they always say communication is the key, uh, and it is. Uh, but no matter how well you can communicate, the other side of the party has to also listen. Um, and you can do as much as you want to tell someone, this is what we're doing, this is what we're doing, but if they don't want to hear it, uh, they'll just say, you didn't tell me. Um, so communication is, is absolutely vital. And also there's levels. If you take an amateur sport like baseball or basketball, when I was growing uh, through the system here in Australia, the person who plays D-grade at, at uh, you know, Crow's Nest Basketball Stadium just wants to go out and have a run. Uh, the state body or the association who registers that player says, you know, you have to pay X amount of dollars to play. Oh, okay. You know, and then if they think it's too much, they go, well, why do you charge me so much? Well, let me tell you about New South Wales. The state body is charging us for you to play. And uh, so then the state body becomes the, the bogeyman. Then all of a sudden, the state body, to clarify themselves, they go to the national body and say, well, it's not us. It's the national body that is causing all the problems. So, you know, your communication level from player to association to state to national 
is, you know, it's a very difficult process to get everybody to understand um, why it's all happening and it, is it for the for the good or or are you really trying to just, you know, uh, get me for, you, for my money? In a lot of leadership courses, goal setting is listed as one of the vital components to set up any business or to continue the success of any business. Do you think that's imperative? Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's like in coaching. You know, you you start a new season. uh, You say, okay, the end goal is obviously to win a championship, and you know that 12 teams in the league, only one's going to win it. But let's go – that's the end goal. So how do we get there? Let's go back to, you know, assembling the team, assembling training facilities, assembling support staff, uh, first game, you know, mid, mid year. So you have to go back and set up your game plan from the opening day till the end. Uh, and then once you get there, the good thing about seasons in sport is you have another season to get through, uh, next year. And, uh, you know, as they, the old saying, there's always next year. In business, it's a lot harder because uh, a Christopher Scase in his heydays was seen as, you know, the the white knight making money and everything was great. Then all of a sudden, three or four years later, he's living in another country and very rich man, but a lot of people went went, uh, broke because of what he did. So you could hide your business, you know, for a long time, especially in those days, uh, and get away with it. Uh, in sport, you can't get away with it because it's on the scoreboard. <laughs> you won or lost that game or that season, and you're hired or fired on whether you won or lost. So for coaches, it's it's very much on the on the scoreboard every every time you step foot on the court. In business, it's still you know regimented and and you're based on you know what happens, but sometimes it takes a lot longer to find out good or bad. What if you're great achievements in your career was setting up a basketball franchise in Singapore. Now, it's often said that good managers are generally good planners. How important was it for you to have a strategic plan and how much time and effort would you have put into that planning process for that particular venture and then obviously developing more detailed management plans as you got closer to the date where things were going to start? I mean, it's a great question because one of my weaknesses is is writing things down uh, and doing a plan that everybody uh, needs to follow. Now, as a coach, I could do that because I would write, you know, the the, the master plan for the year or the season, go go through with my assistant coaches, my staff, and then go through it with the players. Obviously, um, in when I started to get involved with sports teams in from a, a administration and an ownership point of view. In order to be an owner, you have to, you know, I coached for a living, so I didn't have a lot of money. So I had to get other people to invest their money into my vision. Um, now, the trouble with that, or not the trouble with that, the, the key to that is telling them what your vision is and how it should or should not work uh, in order to get them to want to make an investment. So for us in, in Singapore, it was first seeing an opportunity you know, Singapore wanted to increase its sporting presence uh, as a as a country. Uh, the NBL needed, you know, they they couldn't max out any more teams in Australia or New Zealand, so Asia became a good option. So I could put a team in Singapore that would help the Australian league. Um, now, how do I do that? It's a good idea, but how do you do that? Um, so again, it's it's putting a real concrete plan together of. What are the costs? What are the 
positives? What are the negatives? What do you have to get through? Uh, so that strategic plan was was absolutely vital because my partner in this whole venture was the Singapore government. Uh, and the Singapore government is extremely thorough. So I had to be extremely thorough. And for them to invest in the project uh, as they did, and also the indoor stadium was a shareholder in the team, uh, and they invested in the project, you know, it, it became something that I, you know, absolutely must learn how to uh, be thorough in everything you're trying to do. Um, so once we got kind of the overall strategy, how much we needed to, to survive, uh, and then, you know, it, it's you move on the run. So the first two years, uh, we have eight Australians on a team and two Americans and a, a token Singaporean at the end of the bench. And the Singapore government's kind of saying, you know, this is not really helping the Singapore players. Um, so we pulled out of the Australian League, set up a, an ASEAN basketball league, where now uh, all the countries in the ASEAN group of nations have a team. And now it's more peer-to-peer. Uh, -peer. So Singapore has eight uh, Singaporean players, two Americans, and two ASEAN-born players, which is, means you, you have Filipino players. Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam have the same method. So that this last year, Singapore lost to Malaysia in, in the fifth game of a best-of-five series, sold out crowds both in Malaysia and Singapore, and now the Singapore Slingers are on the map as one of the best things in, in all of Singapore in sport. Um, so we had to adjust and maneuver and, you know, change our, our thinking a little bit as we went. But the end result in talking to a lot of the government officials two weeks ago is that the Singapore Slingers uh, have been one of the best investments the Singapore government ever made in sport. Looking at that, and I'm reading an interesting book about the All Blacks, probably the most successful sporting team in history, and the fact that they've got this rule now that after a game, the senior players will get rid of all of the entourage and they will clean up the dressing room. How important is it for an organisation or a sporting team to have that mentality of no jobs too small? Again, you know, great question. Um, when I started to get involved in sports ownership, team ownership, with the Sydney Kings or Singapore Slingers, my thinking changed dramatically from coach to now uh, and creating a culture as the coach because you were the figurehead that could do that with your players, to now how do you develop a culture for the whole organization. Um, and I got fascinated by looking at the New York Yankees or Collingwood or Manchester United or the All Blacks, you know, organizations that did things differently that resonated with the whole team. And when you came in to be a member of that team, you know, if you want to be a New York Yankee, you don't have facial hair. A simple little thing. Uh, but so important as to the, you know, why they are the New York Yankees. When I was in Singapore, uh, I listened to Lee Kuan Yew talk about what they did to make Singapore what it is today. And he said, it was trial and error. We didn't know what to do with this little island that we were given or we took over. And eventually we said, we're going to make a, a first world country in a third world environment and uh, do something different. So he said, you know, you couldn't spit or you couldn't chew gum or jaywalk. And he said, little disciplines like that made our country proud of being Singaporean. 
and look where we are today. Now, those are simple little examples, but sometimes the simplest thing is the thing that kind of embeds itself into the culture. So I'm very fortunate I'm involved with a company now called Sports Tech, which is uh, like TAFE for sport. And one of the principals that we've already employed is a fellow named Michael Byrne, who was the all-blacks skills coach for 13 years. And talking to him, I've met him in the last few months, and talking to him a lot about what makes the all-blacks the all-blacks um, and so different is fascinating to listen to because there's so many of those little things that are now embedded in the culture of whoever comes in as an all-black, this is what is expected of you. If you don't do it, you're not, a, you're not an all-black. How important is delegation and collaboration and what part does that play in leadership? Again, as a coach... You know, the first thing I learned a long, long time ago was surround yourself with good people. You know, if you want to be a millionaire, hang around with millionaires because, you know, you don't want to hang around with bums because you'll learn the wrong lessons. But you cannot, it's a simple fact, you cannot do everything yourself. And you need in any business, in any sport, in any endeavor to have people around you to help you achieve uh, and collectively achieve. So finding the quality uh, of people around you. So the first thing I would always do in any organization, you know, who's going to be on my staff? Who's going to coach the team? Who's going to uh, be the assistant coaches? Who are the support staff? What kind of player do we want to recruit? Um, and like the Sydney Swans, the no dickhead policy, you know, you know when you come in for the Swans, that is what is expected. And we don't want that to come in. Um, now, that's always tested by an individual who might be a good player but not fit the culture. Um, so a lot of times that culture can be eroded. You know, the team I followed more than any team in my growing up years was the Boston Celtics because they had a rich tradition history, not just winning, but they had a culture of what it was expected of being a Boston Celtic. You know, it's 20 years after, you know, let's say 20 years ago, it, it's changed the culture because they've had to adjust and adapt and the leader is not no longer the leader because he passed away. And you know, the Boston Celtics, they're trying, but it's not quite the same uh, as when Red Arback was in charge of the organization and, you know, made sure that the people involved with him were like-minded. You mentioned before you've taken a few organizations from the bottom up. You like the idea of the challenge. Being a coach of a, a basketball team like the Sydney Kings, taking them from where they were originally based to then making them the hottest ticket in town meant that you weren't only just the coach. You were a marketing guy. You were a, virtually a, a senior management guy, even though you were still the coach. Mm. That strategy and getting down to the, I guess, the, the grassroots of any organisation and, and taking it forward from that level, what did you learn about that experience and what has it taught you about business today? We are very, very fortunate that a fellow named Mike Robleski was the chairman and principal owner and, and a real goer of a man. And Lorraine Landon was our general manager and, again, a real basketball person. So in those early days, it was really a trilogy of, of power. You know, So Mike, Lorraine, and I would make almost every decision. And even if Mike disagreed, if to, you know, Lorraine and I agreed, or if I disagreed and Lorraine and Mike agreed, 
we would go with consensus and uh, and move forward. But we worked exceptionally hard. A lot of people don't realize the amount of work that we did, you know, away from the the court uh, in talking to people and talking to organizations and building. Um, you know, links to basketball associations and the player and other sports. And, you know, it, the key was assessing that it was doable. And then, okay, going back and saying, how are we going to get there? And we need to cover off this, 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 and this. And then as time goes on, we'll open up a new door and a new opportunity, and we have to be willing to step in. You've been in Australia for about 40 years. You've gone through various levels and enjoyed success along the way, would you be able to tell us probably the three most important ingredients that you think is important in leadership? I mean, the first thing is I've had a lot of failure too. Uh, so I joke that a lot of people like me to a cross-eyed discus thrower. Uh, I might not set many records, but I'll definitely keep the crowd alert. <laughs> and, and, and that's kind of the first point is don't be afraid of failure because everybody's going to fail. And every season, you're not going to win it every year. Um, so, you know, set your challenge and, and know that there's going to be failure to, to get through. Um, the second thing is be enthusiastic in what you do. Um, because as I said earlier, enthusiasm is contagious and, uh, you know, start an epidemic if you, if you can, but that is only enthusiasm in a belief that is doing some good and, and is believable and doable. Um, so that, that is key. A lot of people take on things and say, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna do this. We're gonna take over the world. Um, and it's so pie in the sky, no one will follow you. But if you know you have a good product, and when I came to Sydney is a good example, uh, I knew having been in Canberra and Newcastle and seen the success and gone to Brisbane and Perth and Adelaide, Sydney was only a matter of time before they caught the same fever everybody else did. So it was right time, right place. And I knew the product would be acceptable to the general public. We didn't come in and say we're going to be the best team in the country or the best team in the city or the best sport in the city. We were happy to be everybody's second favorite team, second favorite sport, uh, and work with everybody. So, you know, we kind of we were enthusiastic about our product. Um, but I think that, you know, so I, th I think being, not being afraid of failure having enthusiasm and uh, belief is is the three keys that I think I would follow. Uh, there might be 10 others I could come up with, you know, if we talk further, but you, you got to believe and you got to believe for the right reasons um, that are fundamental uh, building blocks. And uh, when I grew up, there was a famous, famous coach in America called John Wooden who coached UCLA to 12 championships, you know, never be achieved again. And he had his pyramid of success, like most coaches will have their philosophy written down somehow. Um, and he had his fundamental building blocks that then led to the next level and the next level to the, to the top goal. And the top goal wasn't always winning championships. The top goal was creating, you know, good people, good men, uh, good culture, uh, and a winning approach that everybody would follow. And, uh, and I think that's where the successful teams in sport have done. You said earlier you're involved in a new project called Sports Tech. Just tell us a little bit about that before we wrap things up. Sports Tech is, is like TAFE for sport. It's, uh, it's an education uh, building block. It's a 40-week course. It's, uh, you know, 9 to 3, 30 hours a week. For anybody like 
year 11 and 12 up to 25 years of of age. It's to help you become a better player. It's to help give you a pathway in a career in your sport. It's to help give you a pathway to university if you couldn't make it with the grades that you have. And the fourth pillar is it gives you a pathway to create your own business around the sport that you love. And I've met so many young people who just love their sport uh, and are passionate, don't know how to work in it, don't know, they just want to be a pro player. And, you know, the the, the results or the, um, the stats will show that how many people become NBA players of all the people who play basketball is very, very small. But you can be involved in your sport administratively, marketing, coaching, refereeing. You know, there's so many facets to what you can do. What sports tech does is takes that passion and then channels it through through education as well in giving you a pathway to, you know, complete a, a degree that helps open up doors for the next level. So it's a, it's a missing link right now of kids that are in year 11, 12, or have graduated high school, didn't have the grades to get into uni. You know, we provide a, a solid course that gives you the direction. And, and the main thing is the principals, Rod Kafer and Rachel Crawford, who are the you know, developers of this project a year and a half ago, their mindset is educators and belief in the, in the youth uh, and providing a powerful vehicle that helps them get to the next level. Bob Turner, thanks very much for joining us on the Upskilled Masterclass. My pleasure, Ralph, and hopefully uh, some of the words I had to say uh, resonate with people and, and it helps them as I've learned from so many people in my career. There he is, Sports Administrator Bob Turner, and what a terrific insight into leadership and the role it plays within sport and in business. Thanks for taking the time out to listen today. If you've got any questions or feedback, please head to the website upskill.edu.au. Don't forget, you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can also leave a rating or a view in iTunes, which would be greatly appreciated. And if you really enjoyed today's podcast chat with Sports Administrator Bob Turner, please tell a friend. I'm Ralph Tucker. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. And we'll catch you next time on the Upskilled Masterclass. Upskilled. Upskilled. Masterclass.